Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. And please don't forget, there's a $10,000 matching grant challenge. That's one of these things where one of our supporters has put up 10000 bucks, and for every dollar that's donated between now and the end of the year, uh, he'll kick in another dollar up to 10000 bucks. And if you have a current monthly subscription, well, first of all, thank you. And if you increase the subscription, he'll take that whole amount times 12 and match that. Uh, if you don't have a monthly subscription and you sign up for one, well, same thing, times 12, matching that. So you're going to help us raise ten, another 10 grand really rather quickly if you contribute now. So thanks for joining us, and we'll be back in just a few seconds. There's a lot of talk these days about the tech monopolies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Twitter. The Senate recently issued a report and grilled tech leaders who are assailed from all sides for having too much control over the flow of information. Most modern capitalist countries have some sort of antitrust legislation, recognizing that private monopolies in any sector of the economy inhibits competition and creates concentrated wealth and political power. Even most capitalists in the end think completely unregulated and unrestrained monopolies are not good for capitalism. First, one sector of the elites can become so powerful they essentially take over the government. Roosevelt said this was the very definition of fascism. Such monopolization also makes workers and consumers, and these are actually mostly the same people, although they're often talked about as if they're not, subject to lower wages and higher prices. This is also not good for capitalism as a system, even though it might be good for some individual capitalists, as it lowers demand for products and tends to make recessions longer and more often. There are various approaches about what to do about the current state of monopolization. While tech gets most of the public attention, I think even the more dangerous concentration of wealth is in the finance sector, which to a large degree owns much of big tech. I've written an article about BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street asset managers who have together more than $14 trillion under their control. That's more than the GDP of China. Institutional investors like these big three have effective control of voting stock across 90% of the S&P 500 and beyond. While they don't control these companies on a day-to-day -day basis, to a large extent, they get to choose who does. The other major banks wield enormous power in every sector of the economy. And while Roosevelt said that it was the banks that were behind the monopolies, ownership has only become more concentrated since his day. So what should be done with the monopolies? Some say break them up. Some say regulate them. Some say create publicly owned banks and other enterprises that compete with the privately owned ones regulate private monopolies in the public interest when they exist in critical sections of the economy. Roosevelt advocated that too. Now joining us to discuss this, and hopefully from this point on to monopolize the conversation, is Mary Cleveland, known as Polly Cleveland. She's an economist focusing on wealth distribution and a longtime activist for social justice. Her blog, Economici, also appears on Dollars and Cents website, 
and she serves on the Dollars and Cents Board, and she's an adjunct senior research scholar at Columbia University of International and Public Affairs. Thanks so much for joining us, Polly. You're welcome. I'm delighted, and you're a terrific interviewer. <laughs> Thanks. You just say that because I'm about to interview you, and you want this to be of a course. softball. I'll have to give you a hard time now. Okay, so start with some history. The Sherman Act in the late 19th century was the big founding antitrust legislation in the United States, apparently passed on almost unanimously in the Senate at that time. Uh, so talk about the conditions that gave rise to the Sherman Act, and has it been effective? I mean, we look around the United States, it doesn't look like it was so effective. There's monopolies everywhere you look. Well, there, there's a long history. Now, back in the 19th century, uh, there was the railroad monopoly and the steel monopoly all kind of allied with each other. And among other things, they were uh, ripping off the farmers who relied on the railroads to ship their goods to market. And you interviewed Thomas Frank about the populist movement, uh, which was a, a big organized movement of farmers and to some extent small business, but largely farmers that led to a great deal of outcry and eventually the 1890 uh, Sherman Antitrust Act which at first was not terribly well enforced. In fact, at one point it was used against unions, labor unions. Then there was the Clayton Act uh, in, I don't have the number in front of me, around 1910 or so. And then with Roosevelt, there, there were various strengthenings of uh, antitrust. That was, that was the, well, there was a little bit under Teddy Roosevelt, but then the, the real, vigorous antitrust came with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And that also included the uh, Robinson-Patman Act uh, uh, requiring businesses to, to charge the same price to different, uh, either different customers or different vendors. And that led to what were known as the fair trade laws, which uh, kind of put out of business uh, the A&P and some of the other great chains. Well, it, it reduced their power. So there was a tremendous amount of, of anti-monopoly agitation, a lot of litigation. And you had a period starting with, uh, certainly with the Roosevelt administration and running up till about the 1970s, where there was in fact very vigorous antitrust enforcement uh, by, the, by the Justice Department. And it was also a time, and this is part of my research, this was a time of growing equality and in the mid-70s, equality reached its highest or inequality reached its lowest in the history of the U.S. And I would attribute that to those years of, well, two things, for very vigorous antitrust enforcement and also with World War II, there were very high marginal rates of taxes and that had a great equalizing effect. And it really wasn't until the Kennedy administration that you started getting cuts in those high marginal tax rates. So there was a, you know, I argue that, any, that equality is good for the economy. It produces more jobs. It produces more output. It produces, uh, you know, general 
growth and growth doesn't have to be bad, but that's, that's another subject. But in any case, that era of antitrust was, I think, very effective. The problem was come the 1970s, and this is where I stepped into the picture. My ex-husband and I were working for Ralph Nader, and Nader did some wonderful things uh, for consumer protection. Uh, but what he did began to play into the narrative of the old monopolists, which is that, well, big monopolies are efficient, they deliver good con lower consumer prices, and this is what counts. And therefore, you shouldn't have regulations against monopolies because uh, you're, you're denying consumers the benefit of low prices. And this was certainly by the time I was in graduate school in economics at Berkeley, this was, this was what you were seeing in the textbooks, which is monopoly uh, was kind of relegated to a few chapters at the end of the textbook, if you even got to it. And the whole thing was, well, you know, they'll, they'll behave themselves. Uh, they're, they're, they're afraid of competition, so they'll be good. They're giving us, that's monopolies, they're giving us low prices, and that's what counts. And besides, they're so big and glittering and, and, and efficient, and they have, uh, this was also the, the era of uh, the John Kenneth Galbraith, a new industrial state, and, uh, you know, all of these big corp big beautiful corporations who were transforming the world. So it wasn't it wasn't just the bad guys uh, at the University of Chicago. Uh, it was also a lot of good liberals who saw, saw big corporations as sort of the you know the new modern wave of the future. At Yale University in the mid 70s there was Robert Bork who was also famous for the Saturday night massacre and and not quite making it to the Supreme Court. But in any case, he produ produced a very important or influential book called, I think, The Monopoly Paradox. I've forgotten what the exact title was. But that argued, made the same argument that, that oh, monopolies were efficient, uh, they were beneficial, and by regulating them, you were denying benefits to consumers. So that was, and that was influential not just on the right wing and University of Chicago, but it was influential on the left wing too. Robert Posner published several books, articles, arguing that lawyers should and judges should pay attention to cost benefit. Uh, that is, rather than just saying what was fair or what was legal or what was according to precedent, they should weigh the costs and the benefits. And, of course, when this came down to antitrust, well, they had to look at the benefit to consumers of low prices against uh, and weigh that against what was, you know, had previously been considered as fair. Those were all the influences coming to bear when my husband and I were working for Ralph Nader. We worked on, I worked on a project for the, uh, the Department of Agriculture and the story in the Department of Agriculture was, oh, well, they are, the big businesses are harming consumers with pesticides and they are harming farmers. So we did a report on the Department of Agriculture and we went to California and we did a report on how, uh, 
the large landowners in California were getting all sorts of special favors from both the state government and from the federal government. And this was all good work. And a lot of Nader's work was, was very good, but it had the effect of further undermining confidence in government regulation. So we, we start with the Reagan administration in 1980 and a gradual, or not just gradual, decline in antitrust enforcement, which is they dropped some cases, they let some other folks off with small fines, and on and on, and then you get Bill Clinton, and the Clinton administration went right along with this of not enforcing antitrust, uh, small slap on the wrist fines. Uh, it was Bill Clinton who allowed the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which had previously kept banks from, that is investment banks, from using their, their money um, keep the, rather requiring investment banks to keep their money separate from the money of depositors. So all of a sudden you had investment banks could now dip into their deposits to make speculative ventures, which is what they started to do. And also at some point in there, the rule was dropped prohibiting branch banking. Previously, uh, U.S. banks stayed somewhat small, at least most of them, because they were restricted to operating within one state. And and with the and I forgot. I think that happened under Clinton. In any case, with the repeal of the laws against branch banking, you got this mushrooming of of banks. And as you mentioned in your introduction, the banks came to take over more and more of the economy as the economy became more and more unequal uh, and it's continuing to be. Then of course you had the financial crisis of 2008 and I saw that coming because I'm a land economist and I could see the price of land taking off, uh, the price of housing, but that's the price of land underneath, taking off the way I knew as a historian that it had in the 1920s because there was, in the 1920s, there was a great bubble of bank lending, a tremendous, tremendous amount of speculation, not only on stocks, but on land. Uh, this was partly a consequence of the uh, invention of the automobile, which suddenly opened up a lot of suburban land to development. And you had these, these scam subdivisions in which, uh, you know, a developer goes and he buys a farm and he builds a lake and a clubhouse and he sells off lots to small people who, uh, you know, oh my God, look how fast this land value increased. Uh, if you buy this little plot and pay for it on time, pretty soon you're going to be rich. And of course they were doing speculative lots like this in Florida, you know, underwater lots. And the banks were behind all of this, uh, lending to the speculative developers with the, with the result that, uh, you know, bubbles come to an end. The people who had bought these speculative lots on time stopped paying, the, the developers stopped paying the banks, and the banks started running out of money, which is, you know, by the time the stock market crashed in 1929, the 
the banks, a lot of the banks were underwater with these, with these real estate loans. And it was really more the real estate bubble that, uh, that pulled under the banks as, Roosevelt, as the Roosevelt administration came in in 32. So come 2008, I saw this coming again because I saw the, you know, there's the huge bubble in real estate values and that was around the world too. Uh, some of in the UK, uh, Spain, everywhere, there was just this bank finance bubble and it was going to go bust. And the only thing that surprised me was that it didn't go bust sooner. I mean, I was seeing this bubble taking off by 2004. And it just, it was a miracle that those banks held up until 2008. And then of course, you know, the incoming Obama administration bailed out the banks and, uh, and let the, the, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of homeowners who had paid these overpriced mortgages, let them lose their homes, go bankrupt. Uh, it was just an incredibly bad move. I mean, and, and if you wonder, you wonder where Trump gets his support. He gets his support from small homeowners in, you know, small towns, rural areas, who who really got the worst of this uh, real estate bubble. And it was clear the Obama administration supported the big banks. In fact, part of the response to the to the burst of the bubble in in 2008, 2009 was to merge more banks and make them bigger. So this is. You know, you have you talked about the banks in your introduction. Now, these are the, these are some of the, the worst offenders. Let's go back to the something you said earlier, sort of the basic question here. The development of monopolies under capitalism seems inevitable, spontaneous, uh, big fish eat little fish. And it's if the market left to its own, market forces on their own, will almost always give rise to big monopolies. And, and so far, uh, the best regulation has been able to do antitrust legislation has to create a few competing very big monopolies. Uh, so it's while the market is still monopolized, it's by two or three companies uh, in a sector, uh, but it still winds up being the same kind of power and concentrated wealth. Now, one of the people that said that this was inevitable and a good thing in a way uh, was Karl Marx, who said, that you can't really do much about this. I don't think he was against antitrust legislation. Most of it came after he died anyway, but I, 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 would, I would argue that he would argue, fine, try to regulate them. But what the big monopolies are really doing is showing that they can be brilliantly organized internally. And like Amazon to me is, uh, uh, what's the word, magic, how brilliantly that enormous company is organized internally. But Marx argued the overall economy is completely anarchy. And you keep seeing periodic crises. And now we're seeing it's such anarchy, they, they can't deal with the pandemic, they can't deal with climate. 
um, although many of these companies, including the banks, are like just unbelievable how well they've digitized, how well they plan internally. So you're left with few things to do here. One is some people are, as in terms of banks and even the tech sector, are saying regulate these things as if they are public utilities. They, I guess they still stay in private hands under that kind of scenario. Two, at least in critical sections of the economy, you, you literally either buy them out, make them public, or create a public one, but I think it's a lot easier to buy one than create one from the beginning. And in times of crisis, a lot of these things could be bought pretty cheaply. Um, or three, you, you, have, you try to have a more vigorous enforcement of antitrust legislation, but that's always a problem because the politics is so controlled by these guys that there's a cartoon I'm going to put up here where uh, I think this is from the late 19th century, this cartoon. It's a, a bunch of uh, big monopolists standing with bloated, money-filled bellies behind senators sitting in Congress. Um, and that's very much the problem, that DOJ um, execution of antitrust legislation, pursuing it vigorously, is dependent on who's in power. And increasingly, who's in power are people more and more beholden to one sector of finance and monopolists or the other. I mean, of course, that's a conundrum whatever you try to do. But I guess I, what we're saying is if you had a progressive government and a, you'd need a people's movement too to do any of this, um, or even, I don't know if the Biden administration, I, I don't know that it's going to get serious about anything antitrust. The Obama made a few moves in that direction, but certainly not serious. Anyway, what's your take on, like, in, put this in two ways. What's politically possible with this, Biden's administration coming in. And if there was a really progressive Congress and president, uh, uh, then what should they do? Well, you covered a lot of ground. Uh, and you, you, you mentioned Marx, and of course, there was, this was the big disagreement between Marx and the other great leader in the populist era, which was Henry George, the American, um, and Marx thought, well, concentration is inevitable and somehow you have to get the people on top of it to control it eventually, as opposed to George and, and his followers. And that includes the populists who, who got their economics from George. Uh, and they said, no, break up the monopolies everywhere by, by taxing them as well as regulating them. So that's, that's a complicated story, and, and you need to interview Richard John at Columbia Journalism, who's an expert on all of that. But um, I th the antitrust of the Roosevelt administration was very successful, and it is possible to have really successful antitrust administration, but, and you just have to look at how well the economy did uh, for that period uh, post-World War II when inequality was way reduced. In other words, it is, not, it is not inevitable that the banks and the big monopolists uh, will control everything. And, you know, if, if you think it is, then you're sort of giving up beforehand. There have been successes in the past. There have been uh, antitrust successes in the past. The labor union, labor movement used to be very powerful. 
uh, but you know the the sort of the liberal uh, backsliding from the 80s on allowed the big corporations to come and undermine the labor movement and bill clinton is as guilty as any in that regard but i you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't give up yes you need a populist movement and you know what i i am excited these days that all of a sudden there's a big focus on monopoly and partly it's because big tech has big tech has scared the republicans now as well as the democrats i mean it's the senate now that's proposing to investigate uh the the big tech so they and of course they say oh well you know they're they're liberal they're prejudiced against us republicans well maybe they are but maybe you need a whole bunch more of them smaller ones rather than big ones so i i'm at least a little bit hopeful that as people become aware of just the damage that that monopoly does both through monopolistic practices but also just as causing this enormous degree of inequality in this country. I mean, almost every problem you look at traces back to extreme inequality. So what, well, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's, I agree, this issue of, of, of making public big monopolies uh, or creating uh, public alternatives to privately owned monopolies, uh, that's a whole kind of bigger conversation. And it's also, we're not going to see this certainly under the Biden administration. Uh, and, and I don't think we're going to see it without the mass, a mass movement at a higher level. I do think we need to talk about it a whole lot more because I, I think one of the problems, one of the things holding back a, a bigger mass movement uh, is a vision for what could be. And I don't mean completely utopian vision, this issue of uh, publicly owned big enterprises, publicly owned banks and so on. Uh, we, we already see s s parts of it in, you know, in Europe, in Canada, uh, you know, in mixed, even in the United States. I mean, there's lots of publicly owned things in the United States. But in terms of mixed economy, the publicly owned is so much weaker and the privately owned is so much stronger that that class that owns the big privately owned monopolies really holds the political power. Anyway, but that, let's put that aside for now because it's kind of a bigger picture conversation. What would you like to see this incoming Biden administration do? And, 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 you know, what's, what's the best case scenario that one could expect? I don't think Biden has any great record on this and the people he's starting to appoint in many um, uh, departments and transition teams aren't very encouraging. Although Gary Gensler is actually not a not a bad appointment. He was at the uh, Commodities Future Trading Commission in Chicago, uh, and they actually did try to, if I understand it correctly, uh, they did try to regulate how much of any individual commodity uh, any individual could control. Now they lost that fight more or less in the courts, but Gensler did seem to fight it. So. At least on that question, that seems like something encouraging. So what do you want to see them do? Well, let me, let me first respond to something you said earlier, that these big banks are very efficient. Uh, the answer is no, they are terribly efficient. They are terribly managed. And I mean, and I've talked about it with people who worked for them, uh, but they make so much money from their monopoly position that it that at least until they need to be bailed out again by the government, they, they, are, they are hanging in due to their monopoly position. 
but a little bit of a, an antitrust nudge and some of them might just fall apart and they're they're crooked for god's sakes you know well they're very they're very efficient in their crookedness anyway yeah they're they are they are, uh, they are good at bribing people and influencing people but you know why is jamie diamond still the, the head of chase with all of these indictments for criminal behavior i mean <laughs> what uh so to some extent, I think the big banks and Citibank is is a joke. You should talk to some of the people who've worked for Citibank. Amazon is pretty well organized. Amazon appears to be pretty well organized yeah. as an absolutely ruthless monopolist uh, in the way it it sucks the juices out of its vendors. Uh, it's very nice to high income consumers like me because I suppose we're supposed to be mollified by that. Uh, but what it does to its vendors, but it's a new company. You know, General Motors once upon a time was very efficient. When you got a new company set up under some brilliant people, you know, for a while, they may be very well managed and very efficient, but it doesn't last. I mean, General Motors fell apart. Businesses that have been around for a while uh, pass on to the next generation of managers and they get fat and happy and sloppy and incompetent and it's 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 inevitable so but they are the argument against i against breaking up either the banks or even amazon or the tech companies that that also only works for a while because even if if you can accomplish it which is very difficult because they they have such powerful lobbying but if you can the capital that's actually that owns those things is is very concentrated and and they'll figure out a way to bring back to scale like they broke up the telecoms but it's more or less back to a few big monopolies in telecom um that 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 you can't, just breaking them up it doesn't last very long in terms of the effect of weakening them either politically or in terms of competition that's a recipe for giving up i mean the, the fight never ends and you know the the antitrust fight from from the Roosevelt era was so successful that people forgot about the importance of antitrust. So uh, eternal vigil, what is it? Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. You got to stop. You got to keep fighting. But it's much easier to fight if, if you don't have you know such an unequal economy with all of the wealth. I, it's going to take a, a, a revolution like happened during the during the Roosevelt administration of you know more pecora hearings, more people marching in the streets, and if the economy really collapses as badly as I think it's going to collapse uh, as a result of this virus, that I mean bad times sometimes bring on activism. Let's hope. Uh, I mean, I'm going to keep fighting, and while I'm getting and and my daughter's politically very active, and she's going to keep fighting. Uh, there's there's no escape from fighting. It, you have to keep fighting. Yeah, I sure wouldn't argue against that. I would say that added to the demand of breaking up the big monopolies should be the creation of public companies of scale. So I, I, I'm certainly not arguing against fighting, but let's be, be very specific if you can. What, what, dem what demands would you make of the Biden administration on this, in this area of antitrust? Postal banking, uh, 
you can have the so-called Tobin tax, a small tax on the uh, stocks and bonds as they are turned over, which would stop a lot of the uh, corrupt behavior of the of the securities of the banks. Uh, yes, uh, investigate the banks and break them up if you can. Uh, I would make that. And you do, as I said, you do need public banking, starting with postal banking. It would be nice if you could go back to limiting the banks to the states, but certainly, you know, your bank, TD, uh, Toronto Dominion is one of the big banks, but it's very small compared to Chase. You don't need anything as big as Chase and Citibank. So, yes. That sure ain't my bank. I don't own it. <laughs> You're saying that because I'm partly Canadian. So well, I'm, yeah, dual, yeah, I'm a but, dual citizen, but, although you accuse me of saying a boot, and I don't think I ever say a boot. But anyway, <laughs> what, would you, what would you do with the tech companies? There are a lot of interesting solutions as to certainly you want to break them up and certainly you want to, I mean, they are violating, just enforce the antitrust rules. You don't even have to have to have new antitrust laws. Uh, they are doing tied sales. They are ripping off their suppliers, playing them off against each other. Uh, they are, you know, potentially ripping off consumers, but, uh, but, uh, but, you know, they, they are violating antitrust laws up, down, and crosswise. Uh, just enforce enforce the law, and I think there is a lot of uh, a movement for that. But you know, it's you need some new laws too, and exactly how how you make something like Amazon more of a public market because markets have always been regulated, and the best markets always have been heavily regulated. So you need you need a framework for Amazon so that it becomes like a, a public market where the vendors can go out and display their wares and people can buy them uh, without you know thirty forty percent going to Amazon and maybe Amazon should be nationalized. I don't think that would be a bad idea. I don't think that's going to happen. I think I actually think that if in some perfect world here. Uh, where you really have a progressive government and a progressive mass movement. Um, that's, I would think, one of the most important things that could change, transform the economy is to buy Amazon. And it doesn't matter what it costs. And then, first of all, raise the minimum, the minimum wage of Amazon. Just raise it to 25 bucks an hour, which would just transform the wage scale in the whole country. Yes, that, I am certainly down with... with uh, raising minimum wages substantially. I mean, $15 is a start. Uh, you know, the old economic view is, oh my God, that will kill jobs. Well, yeah, raising the minimum wage would destroy jobs in a perfectly competitive economy, but we aren't in anything close. And when you have a monopolized and monopsonized, that is a single buyer as well, monopsonized economy, uh, raising the minimum wage is a very good way to fight back. I, I should add one thing, because every time I talk about this, uh, I get emails and I agree with the emails. And I don't want to get too much into this now because it is kind of another topic. But when I talk about creating like a publicly owned Amazon, one, I'm not talking about a monopoly. There could be Amazon could continue and you create a public competitor 
But also, I think it's very important that the ownership of large publicly owned enterprises are diversified. Uh, you know, too much economic concentration, uh, ownership and power in too few hands is always going to be a problem, even if it's public. So this issue of how to create a diversified form of public ownership when you have things that are a big scale needs to be addressed. But that being said, at least there's a, a democratizing process can go along with the public ownership. In the current situation, there's, there's simply no democracy involved in how Amazon does business. So, okay, so concretely, what would you like to see a Biden administration do? When Biden takes office, there are certain things he can do immediately without worrying about Congress. He can forgive student debts, which is billions already. He can fully finance the IRS. He can shift funds from elsewhere if need be. After all, if Trump can finance his wall by shifting funds, Biden can fully fund the IRS. What does uh, that Biden, mean from the IRS? Well, the, IR, the Internal Revenue Service collects only a fraction of income taxes due, and that's because it has been increasingly and desperately underfunded over the years, deliberately, and this has been to some extent a bipartisan decision. And the result is that the, bi that the IRS focuses on collecting taxes from the little guys and forgets about the big guys because it takes a lot of expensive staff and lawyers to go after major corporations. So with full funding, there is literally billions of dollars that the IRS could be collecting without any change in the tax laws. So that's, that, that might pay off in a year or so. Uh, fully fund the antitrust division of the Justice Department and start enforcing because a lot of what big tech is doing and the monopolies are doing is blatant violation of antitrust, on its face violation. It wouldn't be too difficult to prove. Beyond that, uh, Richard Vague and Michael Hudson and others have called for a debt jubilee and there need to be programs for mortgage debt relief, student debt relief, you know, not just federal health care debt relief, small business debt relief. And all of this is very important if the economy is to recover, is to reduce the load of debt. Uh, send money to cities, again, transferring it if necessary, because that saves many jobs, many more jobs than other spending. I mean, not highways. You need to spend money on, on fixing cities and providing city services. And if you get ambitious, you can, he can cancel new contracts for weapons systems or close military, foreign military bases. Again, a lot of that he can do absolutely on his own without requiring Congress to agree. And you've interviewed Bob Pollan, and he says that military spending provides the least employment per dollar spent of, of virtually any kind of federal money. So that would give Biden plenty to do without having to have the Senate. So a final word from you, Polly, on this whole question. A final word. Well, my final word is that I am very optimistic that this new generation of, of trust busters, and I'm talking about Barry Lynn and Zephyr Teachout 
and so many others uh, that that they are going to have a real impact, and we're going to have we're going to see a, a change, uh, aggressive enforcement of antitrust laws, as well as taxes. I mean, we need taxes on folks like Amazon. In some cases, uh, heavy taxes and tax enforcement will also help to break them up. It's not just antitrust laws. It's also taxing their ill-gotten gains. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic. I have to be, and I'm going to keep fighting. Great. Thanks very much, Polly. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, there's a matching grant campaign going on here. One of our supporters has donated 10,000 bucks so if you create a new donation today, he'll match it. If there's a new monthly sub, he'll we'll multiply that times 12 and he'll match that. And if you're a current donor uh, doing a monthly subscription and you raise the amount of the monthly subscription, then he'll multiply that times 12 and match that up to the 10,000 bucks. So please donate. Uh, thanks for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.